Welcome to Viewpoints Listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grosser. Give me a great pleasure to welcome Russell Hanby, regular guest for What's Making News for this edition of News, which is Friday the 5th of March 2021. Welcome again to What's Making News, Russell Hanby. Thanks, Henry, and uh, you're well, I take it. I hope so. Do you know anything I don't? You've been talking no. to my doctor. No, I mean, off air you sounded full of beans, so everything is good. Which sort of beans are we talking about, Russell? Coffee beans, <laughs> spring beans, butter beans? More baked, baked beans, yeah. Cocoa beans. What sort of beans did you say? Baked beans. Mm. Base beans? Baked. Oh, baked. You yeah. mean cooked. You mean I'm cooked. <laughs> There's another beans, meaning, cooked. Beans, beans in the can, yeah. Beans in the can. Keep it in the can. Now, you had homework. Tell us all about it. Yeah, we discussed the, the word rigmarole came up. Uh, yes. And uh, you asked me to find out where that came from originally. Well, uh, we know the meaning. It's, an, uh, it's got sort of two meanings, an elaborate or complicated procedure, like to go through the rigmarole of a formal dinner, or, or it can mean just confused, incoherent, foolish and meaningless talk. Now, the origin uh, was first recorded in 1730 to 40. It's apparently an alteration of ragman roll, R-O-L-L. Now, that was a legal document recording a list of offences. Now, I'll make it clearer when we go back even earlier to Edward I of England. Edward I of England was also known as Hammer of the Scots. He forced members of the Scottish nobility to swear allegiance to him by signing oaths of allegiance. They were collected on a number of parchments that together made up what became to be called the Ragman Roll. Why Ragman? Now, there's some disagreement about that. It may contain a Scandinavian root related to cowardice. In Icelandic, ragmeni means coward, or it could go back to a medieval word for um, devil. Ragman was also the name of a game where a scroll of parchment had strings hanging from it that pointed to various, likely bawdy, verses in the scroll. Players would choose a string to find their verse, and it would be read out to the entertainment of all. Now, over time, Ragman roll for a long roll of parchment full of nonsense eventually became rigmarole, a long, unnecessarily time-consuming hassle. No doubt a word, as it says, that has always been useful. Well done indeed. What a good story. We even got a King of England in there somewhere. We did too. So it comes from a big scroll of many nonsense things and hence we get rigmarole. Rigmarole. Well done. That was your homework? That's right, yes. Well, well done. That's 10 out of 10 for that. Uh, Russell, we might even give you a week's break from it because it's a long weekend coming up and we wouldn't want you to be, you know, um, avoid missing out on a good break. So well done and we'll give you a week off. That's your reward. Oh, thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) What's making news? The age, Russell, bid for more Catholic school funds. The Catholic Education Commission of Victoria is seeking state and federal funding for its plans to open half a dozen schools in Melbourne's fast-growing outer suburbs. It's an interesting one, this, Russell, because there's a diversity of opinion about whether this is, A, necessary and, B, um, should should be approved. That's right. Uh, and as you said, six Catholic schools will open in 2022 and 2023 in Cranbourne and North Cranbourne, that's uh, local, uh, Craigieburn and Greenvale, with a primary and secondary school in Melton South. Uh, now, a, former, a further seven primary schools and two secondary colleges are planned for 2025. Now, a state school lobby group has, has branded the funding request a greedy grab for taxpayers' money from an educational system that had lost its market share in Victoria. 
Uh, in fact, uh, Trevor Cobbold of the State Schools Lobby Group Save Our Schools says the Catholic schools have received a massive boost in recurrent funding from uh, special deals by the uh, Morrison government. So uh, it's again the state versus private uh, uh, problems again with, with funding, isn't it? Yes, and it goes all the way back to um, the politics of the major parties and the, the original Gonski, um, Gonski report, which led to the funding reforms. And yes, as, as uh, we've had Trevor Cobbold from Save Our Schools on this program a number of times, and he illustrates quite clearly um, how because the federal government funds private schools to 75% of their funding uh, and they've made special deals, um, the Catholic Education um, lobby group have received massive funding compared to the public school system, which, uh, as an advocate for, he believes is not getting a fair deal. So um, it's an it's an interesting one. The Catholic uh, the Catholic uh, system, uh, when you look at the stats, it shows that. Um, that the the number of students, the official data showed number of students enrolled in Victorian independent schools, which is the non-Catholic uh, private schools, they grew 2.6% last year, compared with just a 0.65% rise in Catholic schools. State schools increased enrolments by 1.65%. So um, while they're growing, they're lagging considerably behind the other two sectors, aren't they? So does it, what sort of a rise does that justify would be the question, wouldn't it? Well, that is, yes, I suppose. Obviously, if they want to build all these new schools, I suppose they're saying these are the areas of growing population, then I, I guess they want the, the more money. But on the other hand, the uh, the non-government schools capital fund does provide $402 million to upgrade and build Catholic and independent schools. So it's the old people versus state and uh, state versus non-state schools, isn't it, that, uh, as regards funding that we've talked about many times. Yes, and another way of looking at the Catholic system's share of enrolments from a different perspective is that instead of rising 065 in one year, they've fallen from 22.5 in 2015 to 20.9 in 2020. So over a five-year period, their enrolments have dropped, uh, what, 1.6%. Uh, so uh, while their funding from the federal government has been boosted through special deals, the overall enrolments uh, in the last five years and most of that time has been Gonski time, have dropped. Um, state school people would probably not have too much empathy for them being boosted uh, because uh, the state schools believe they're not well funded in the first place and the most vast majority of students, two-thirds more, go to public schools. It's, a, it's one of those interesting ones where... Um, Everybody lobbies for their best deal, uh, irrespective of the other sectors. That's right. I suppose it's everyone's got their uh, their own interests at heart, haven't they? Absolutely. And uh, it's interesting, the Trevor Cobalt stats. Uh, moving on, Russell, this one, well, you'd like this one. You'd yeah, this is uh, a breath of fresh air. From There's the a lot of that up in the gully, isn't there? Yes, fresh, cool, not hot air up here. Um, <laughs> it's the most. What are, you anxious... hey, what are you saying? Not up here. I <laughs> know oh, you can just. That, I thought that would go through to the keeper, but you obviously uh, just about caught it. <laughs> <laughs> it's the most anticipated sound in the delivery suite: the full-chested wailing of a newborn as they take their first breath in the outside world. 
and uh, babies' lungs, that they make the biggest transformation the human body will ever undertake. That's an interesting fact, isn't it? That they're just born and that they make the biggest transformation from the liquid-filled womb to the gaseous atmosphere. They, they're surrounded by liquid in the womb and they have to go into the, uh, the air. Uh, Melbourne researchers and engineers have developed a satin sash that can unobtrusively wrap around a newborn's chest, and this records their first breaths. Murdoch Children's Research Institute has uncovered how babies use their first cries to clear and protect their lungs. And this uh, fact can lead to uh, a knowledge for better resuscitation of premature babies. They use what's called electrical impedance tomography, and that allows the researchers to document what normal breathing patterns were for healthy um, newborns. Now, as babies breathe out in between each cry, a gas is exchanged from already uh, filled parts of lungs to less filled parts of lungs. And now that will stop parts of the lungs at risk of being filling up again with liquid. So it's that important first cry or two that helps with the, the lung uh, capacity and the lung health. Mm, it's, um, and it, it helps them with establishing the issues that uh, cause babies to get chronic lung problems. Uh, and it starts with the very first breath. When you stop and think about it, Russell, you'd it's it does appear as though that would be a relatively self-evident fact, wouldn't it? That, yes. That when you first start breathing and kickstart your lungs into action, that getting that going correctly and properly and efficiently right from the get-go is... Um, would be most important, you'd think, wouldn't you? You would, because uh, well, you've never breathed air before, and uh, obviously the first time you do it is the very important time to, and you've got to equalise your lungs and uh, get used to it, etc. Even uh, you see calves are being born and sheep, etc. It's the same everywhere about that first breath, isn't it? That's most important. I think we've all seen those vet shows uh, where they, uh, as soon as the newborn's done, they rub it with straw and try to get it to breathe. Uh, and in the old in the 50s they used to whack the bottom of the babies they don't do that anymore but uh, to get them to cry I remember that I got a few whacks on the bottom after I was born and I was a few <laughs> years old yeah that, that, <laughs> might, that might not be to help you with breathing though no I certainly cried <laughs> yeah well that's right <laughs> uh, but that was a different world a different time Russell we're going to take a short break and you hold the line yes certainly <laughs> Welcome back to Viewpoint Sisters. I'm your host, Henry Gross. We've got a bit of a discussion of what's making news, our regular weekly segment with Russell Hamby. Welcome back, Russ. Thanks, Henry. Now, Russell, the next one's a very interesting one, particularly from the educational point of view and, and I guess just from everybody's point of view. In the Herald Sun, Dr. Zeus slammed as a racist rhymer. Dr. Zeus' books are being phased out of Australian school, public and tertiary libraries after a decision to stop publishing six hurtful titles. Yes, now, it is interesting. And, of course, I think anyone who's had uh, children or grandchildren recently will know Dr. Seuss books and uh, the kids find them fascinating because they sort of nonsensical stuff really in it. But uh, the books are, and to think I saw it on Mulberry Street, if I ran the zoo, McGillicott's uh, Pool, On Beyond Zebra, Scrambled Egg Super and The Cat's Quizzer. Now, why? Well, Mulberry Street, which was first published in 1937, includes an illustration of uh, a Chinese man with sticks holding chopsticks. The 1950 book, If I Ran the Zoo, features barefooted African men wearing grass skirts. Uh, Scrambled Egg Super and On Beyond Zebra feature stereotypical Arabian figures. 
Uh, and uh, so the Australian Library and Information Association Chief Sue McKerica, or McKerica said uh, picture books are reviewed for appropriateness and uh, they've got to make sure they're current and not in any way raped or bigoted to cause offence. And it was felt some of these uh, depictions might do that. It's interesting that Dr. Seuss Enterprises, uh, the company, said that they're ceasing sales of the books because they do agree they can portray people in hurtful and wrong ways. So as we come into the uh, year 2021, we're looking at some of these old, well-loved uh, picture books of the past, aren't we? Mm, and and uh, it's an interesting bit as the um, Senior Arts and Education Research Fellow at the AE Catholic University, Kevin Donnelly, said, he said, <clears throat> from his perspective, uh, we're cancelling the innocence of childhood and the joy of parents being able to read to their children. It's taking the fun out of the interaction between parents and their children and making it very bleak and negative. However, University of Melbourne academic associate professor Lauren Rosewarne said the decision was a reflection of where society is at culturally. This is something the company has done and this is not censorship. I think the reason they're doing it is the books are old and they look old. They are trying to make their product relevant in a culture which is more savvy and sensitive to issues of racism. So there you have uh, a different people in the field of education holding differing views. Um, but I'd say, you know, uh, what was perhaps okay 100 years or 50 or 30 years ago, it's not anymore. It's uh, The world has changed and has. we change with it, I guess, don't we? we even I remember the books. I, I, I grew up with Enid Blyton books, you know, The Secret Seven, Famous Five, etc. And uh, they were good boys' adventure books. But I must admit, looking back, it was all the males were doing all the heavy the strong stuff and the females and not so much. Uh, it was sort of very stereotyped, wasn't it? I thought about it much then. I suppose it was just the, the way of the, the world. Yeah, I think what we're we're in an era where stereotypical um, images and symbols of uh, people and events that can be seen as uh, harmful and negative um, are no longer acceptable. And look, in many ways, that's a good thing, Russell, because what we read and how we read it does have an impact on our subconscious, doesn't it? It does. And I guess the thing about these early Dr. Seuss books, it does is for often preschoolers read them, and uh, I guess they can form images in their mind from that early age, can't it? Mm. And the bottom line is if that's the way it's happening, that's the way it's happening. So we need to write uh, write books that um, fit the fit the the times and it'll be interesting in another 50 years whether the books we think are okay today and we won't we won't know that uh, 50 no. years from now whether people will have a problem with them <laughs> do, you, do you just your library look through books sometimes to see how what we call appropriate they are or yeah, we, we do, Russell. We always check books. There's a lot of things that need to be checked out to see whether they're appropriate. Uh, uh, I don't think we did that 40 or 50 years ago. We didn't look through them. I think if there was um, foul language or adult uh, themes, that would have been inappropriate. But in terms of the, the these types of reasons, um, no, it's it's a much more recent phenomenon that we're, we're undertaking. So it's goodbye to six titles of Dr. Zeus. Yes, and I, I have a feeling that might be the first, uh, the last of them to go either, you know, the way it goes. Probably not. Now, what's going on with um, The Grape Escape, as distinct from The Great Escape? Yes, 
a grape escape as students reap harvest from the age. An unused back paddock has become a pathway to local employment for dozens of students east of Melbourne. And uh, in terms of Upper Yarra Secondary College in the Yarra Valley, they planted its own vineyard three years ago. Now, in the first harvest, which is on now, the students have to collect the ripe fruit from 1,685 vines of Pinot Noir grapes. Now, it's part of a course, or an elective course they're doing for Certificate Two in Viticulture for senior students. Now, it's the first in the state. Uh, it's only got a small number of students doing it, about eight to 12 at the moment. Now, the elective also includes lessons in pest and disease management, irrigation and canopy maintenance. Now, the grapes will be processed into wine. They can't do it themselves, of course. So it's going to be done at the nearby Wood Winery. And they're not allowed to sell it at the school, but this is handled also by the winery. But students will then be involved in marketing and designing the label for the finished product. Now, at the moment, it, it, it does cost the school a lot of money. It's $50,000 to establish the vineyard and about $10,000 a year for maintenance. But Principal Scott Tully, he expects the school to break even this year and, and then down the track to, to even run at a, at a profit. Uh, also, the school has struck a deal with uh, Yarrowwood for uh, selling the wine. And Box Hill Institute is going to offer students school-based apprenticeships in, uh, in horticulture. So it, it, it's sort of good that it's actually providing the um, future employment, you could say, in that local area uh, in the Yarra Valley. Mm, no, look, it's one of those ones that it's, uh, it ticks a lot of boxes in almost every way. And I think you've got to give credit to the school for their um, innovativeness there. And uh, uh, clearly the, um, it, it's one that uh, will have an impact on these students' lives as adults. They won't forget yep. this experience and it'll, it'll probably form part of how they go about their lives. And that can yeah, only be a good yep. thing. The only thing I was thinking in this day and age where everyone's questioning things is some parents or people may not think that we should be promoting alcohol even in the very basic way of making it, you know. But uh, what do you think of that answer? Yeah, I can see that point of view. But then at the same time, um, wine is very much a part of our culture. Um, I think what we're talking about there is the abuse of alcohol rather than the use of alcohol. That's a different issue, isn't it? Yes, I, you, you think it would be, yes. Mm, it's an interesting one. Um, odd spot. This is a funny one, Russell. Yes, this is the one. It's a, Some of our odd spots are a bit hard to sort of take on board, but this one's a, quite a, a good one. There are two women who became close friends while working at the same United States restaurant have discovered Eight years later, they're actually sisters. Cassandra Madison and Julia Tonetti said they met in 2013 when they were waiting tables at the Russian Lady in New Haven. The women said the fact they were both adopted and had Dominican Republic tattoos helped them bond. One of the women recently reconnected with her birth family and learned another sibling had been put up for adoption. Now, a subsequent DNA test proved they were actually sisters. So this is eight years later after they first met. Gosh, it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, fancy. <laughs> you you would think that was a needle in a haystack thing, wouldn't it? Um, you would. A, that they both got tattoos that made them bond. Secondly, that they actually worked there. Thirdly, that they shared stories that led to the fact that they're actually, they're actually sisters. I mean, that's the irony of that one, or the, the hard part to believe of that odd spot is that that would happen. Yes, the chance of that happening... 
because I've got both from the Dominican Republic and uh, going into America and working in the same restaurant uh, and then having this uh, family bond, uh, it's almost a very rare rarity, isn't it? Well, yes, that's based on what's probably a presumable assumption is that there aren't too many of us out there who have brothers or sisters that we're not aware of. If <laughs> if if it was a common practice out there, Russell, then it would make it less of a wandering phenomenon of of, of, of um, extreme rarity. Yes, that's right. I suppose uh, you do hear about people suddenly discovering they've got half-brothers and sisters, often from a former relationship with the parents, but uh, this is different, isn't it? It's different. It's a once, and good luck to them, I'm sure, from the reading of it, and I don't know much about them. I'm sure that um, they've uh, it's brought some happiness and, and joy to their lives, and if that's true, then that's a wonderful thing. Indeed, yes. Well, Russell, that takes us out. You've got no homework. We'll get you off the line before I give you any. Enjoy the long <laughs> weekend, and we shall be back uh, same time next Friday. Yes, we'll look forward to it. Take care. That was Russell Hamby, What's Making News, listeners, and uh, we'll take a short break.